and welcome to the autumn series of Cyberglass Ceiling. My name's Charles James. In this series, we'll be speaking to people around diversity, neurodiversity, as well as the challenges that leaders have in cybersecurity. Thank you for listening and enjoy. So Cheryl, really good to meet you. Um, and we're going to kick off with a couple of questions. So we're going to get into it. And uh, about your background, can you share a bit about your background and you know what led you to your current role as a DEI communications specialist? Yeah, so Charles, my background is super, super varied. I actually, um, I'm actually a qualified optician to begin with. And I went into optics at a young age because when I was in school, my careers advisor told me that journalism wasn't for somebody like me. Wow. And at the time, I didn't actually, being young and naive, I didn't actually know what they meant by that. I just thought, oh, you know, I'm sure I'm good at English. I love writing stories. So what does that mean? But anyway, let me go and train to be an optician. So I did that. And five years later, I thought, you know what? sod them I'm going to retrain <laughs> to be a journalist so it wasn't actually until I went into journalism that I realized what they meant yeah. that you know when I was looking around my university peers and they were all from a certain group um funded by the bank of mum and dad mm -hmm. whereas I was on my still working as an optician to keep myself going they all looked the same all had these strange names the, <laughs> what, the Tarquins? Tarquins and the, the Poppies <laughs> and the Chelsea's and all this. And I was like, okay. And then when I looked into the industry to see who was there, there were there were very few black journalists mm. at the time. It's, it's really weird because I remember being at school and, you know, so long ago I was at school, I think we had one computer. And even though I was interested in it, I was told, not for people like you, yeah. James. Uh, they used to say, uh, I guess, well, it's a computer. And it's like they, you were ushered away. Yeah. And again, uh, I, I feel your pain even yeah. back then. So, no, so do carry on. I mean, even when I decided to retrain, everybody around me was like, oh, you're being really stupid. You should stay as an optician, blah, blah, blah. You're never going to get And I was like, no, why are there limitations on what I can do? This is what I want to do, and I'm going to go off and do it. So I retrained, and I luckily landed my first role at Bloomberg. Oh, nice. And uh, so I was focused on financial journalism for a while and then moved on to Bloomberg Money Magazine, some various other investment magazines. Then I moved to the, the Mirror Group, um, did some editorial stuff there, was the editor of the Birmingham Post at one point. And then I went into corporate communications ah. and landed at GSK and I spent a, a long time in corporate comms. Um, in the HR function, primarily dealing with HR comms, um, the magazine that they had, which was called UK Pharma, that was purely me. Um, anything to do with people yeah, and getting the message across about how uh, we can better serve our people and the needs of people within the business and also talking about the new innovations that GSK were doing at the time. That's what I was leading on. Yeah. And I did that for about 13 years. Oh, wow. It's funny because... Um... When the guests that I have on this show, um, because they're, you know, 
high ranking in, in, in the IT industry working for banks, they have to go through the comms people to say, oh, let's see if I can do this. Uh, I'm still trying to convince one or two that it's not about the bank per se, it's about you. And now you represent the bank, but um, also it's about, you know, what, what you, how you got to where you've got to. So no, fully aware of that and um, fully aware that uh, uh, you comms people can either um, say yay or nay. <laughs> And you know what? It's funny you said that because when I first started in GSK, because I'd come from um, newspaper world, mm. magazine world, and we just told it as it is, you know, I was responsible for breaking so many stories. And then to go into the corporate world where you had to be very careful of what you said, I had a huge battle for about six months. I used to go home crying every night thinking... I'm rubbish, I don't know what I'm doing, why can't I say this, this is what's going on, and I quickly learned that there's a language, there's a way you speak when you're in corporate land. Corporate politics. Corporate politics, you or don't give away the... Corporate BS. Yeah, there's, there, <laughs> well, yeah, polite way of putting it, you don't actually give away what's actually going on, because if you did that, most organisations would be in a lot of trouble. So then... Um, I went into banking, back to banking, and so I worked at HSBC as a corporate comms um, advisor, specialist and strategy person. And then someone approached me who I'd worked with way back when on my first role in media to launch, uh, well, to launch Diversity Q. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the company that was doing it were working with the Women in Finance Charter to develop the charter and then they put on the Women in Finance Awards to support it and then they wanted a publication to support that. So I, I joined and then within five months thought, why are we just talking about women? You know, when it comes to diversity in the workplace, it affects so many people in so many different ways. Let's just talk more broadly about DEI, not just about the impact that women... No, indeed. You know, the um, impact on women. Um... I was having the conversation uh, again for the last few episodes. Back even my last episode um, in in banking, you don't have the same people that bank. You have a diverse range of people, women, people of colour, uh, again LGBTQ, all different. So how do you communicate to them if you've got the same type of people in your organisation? Yeah, 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 exactly. How do you build the products for? the world if it's just one type of person building them so I developed out DQ to become the leading publication in the space across the UK and US and to some extent India which I never actually worked out how that worked but we had a huge following in India and then and this summer I've decided that I've done that for five years there's only so much I can do in building it out to the way I want to build it and then doing more and I'm going to be completely honest, the organisation I was in didn't really want to do the more that mm -hmm. I wanted to do. So I decided to launch my own um, communications company specialising in DEI because what I realised over the years, the five, six years of doing this work, is that why a lot of um, DEI initiatives fail is because of poor communication on the entire journey, the life cycle um, why, when you try to convince your stakeholders, your business, your employees that this is the right thing to do, it's how you communicate that can either make or break whether it's a success. And I've realised that a lot of organisations struggle with okay. that. 
So it brings me on to the next question about the key challenges when you face promoting diversity within organisations today. Um, how how do, you, do you sort of combat that? Oh, well, let me tell you about the key challenges to begin with. Um, there's a lot of DEI fatigue out there at the moment. You know, organisations are saying, we've done a lot of work in this space, but nothing's really changed. And, you know, we're bored of the rhetoric, we're bored of the language. We're pumping money into it, but what we, we're not seeing anything come back, so to speak, because it's harder to, to measure. Then you have the other thinking where we keep talking about how we're going to promote women, and then the other group are thinking, well, what about us? You know, it's not just about women all the time. You have organisations that say, where is the commercial value in what I'm doing? Um... And if there is commercial value, I'm not seeing it because, again, going back to the point that it is quite difficult, mm -hmm. it can be quite difficult to to measure, but there are various ways that you can measure that. Then you have organisations that don't fully understand what they can or can't do because of the legal framework that supports DEI and it's changing quite often and new bodies are coming in and saying, we want you to this happen or you can't do that, etc. So there is that confusion about what you can and can't do so a lot of companies don't do anything no understand yeah don't do anything in case of offense or in case of being challenged in case of being well especially if you're in the u.s in case of being sued against discrimination against one group even though you're trying to support another group mm. um yeah so they don't do anything so you know, it's easier not to do anything. Again, and you've spoken in the US as well, haven't you? You've, you've I've spoken in the US, yeah. yeah. And uh, I've spent some time in America. I was in, in, luckily I was in Chicago, where, you know, I was blinded by the, the, the largeness of, of America. And I'm going back to uh, late 1999, early 2000s. And I thought it was awesome. But, you know, sometimes you, you ch I choose... I chose to see what I did see and chose mm -hmm, to ignore mm -hmm. what you know was blatantly obvious mm -hmm. um, because at that time it was like getting on the ladder and, and you know shadowing guys that are making a million dollars a year selling software and I'm like I want to be one of them I don't care what you don't see it but um, of course I remember being at an event um, in uh, somewhere in Chicago and uh, it, the company I was working for. Um, okay, flew in all the sales guys from across the US and, and, and Europe and, and the world. And uh, I was speaking to some guy from the South. Uh, and he genuinely didn't know there were black people in England. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He, he had no idea that there were. And I looked at him and I said, You know, where have you been? In, in, in the South. Somewhere. In the South. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, no, I, I do get it. And it, it, it still amazes me today. That's another whole conversation yeah. um, about, you know, and America. The but. challenge is if you're an international company as well, even if you are operating in the US, different states in the US operate differently. Mm. So that, you know, the whole DEI agenda is a minefield. So, and then you have to then do what you do in the UK. And if you operate in Asia, again, it's completely different how you talk to people mm -hmm. and address people. So it can be quite challenging for organisations to get their head around what they can and can't do when and how. So the easiest thing is to do nothing. <laughs> Indeed.
Can you provide examples of specific initiatives and programs that you've implemented to promote diversity and inclusion, and what's been the outcome? Okay. Oh God, quick question. Um, <laughs> so I've written um, DEI inclusive leadership training modules. Um, the reason being, I've noticed that because of this apathy and the not understanding the commercial value of DEI, I needed to educate a certain group of people within the organisation as to why it was important and why it's important to have a DEI strategy that marries your business strategy. There's no point doing them separately. They mm -hmm. have to work hand in hand. And if you do that, you can actually see the outcomes that you're, the commercial returns that you're trying to achieve. Um, it's easier to measure. Um, it's easier also to realise that if you don't engage your employees or treat your employees right, even if you brought in, them in as a diverse person, if they don't stay within the company, that's cost you a lot of money off the bat, recruiting them, bringing them through for a certain time and then watching them leave is yeah. really expensive. Indeed. You don't want to do that. So I wrote a, an inclusive leadership training module. And to be fair, I did have some resistance to why we need to do this, why do we need to sit on this programme for what was it, two, four hours <laughs> out of my life to, uh, I, you know. I've, I've been doing that for years. Yeah. You know yeah. What do you mean I need to take another exam in technical? Exactly. This or technical that? And it was just like Making my brain bleed. Seriously, people. <laughs> and then it was, just, after they did it, it was just like, oh, okay, yeah. I get it now. I get it now. I'm going to be completely honest and say, how long did that um, awareness last? Uh, or enthusiasm mm. or to do better to do right last it lasted for as much as I kept bounding on their door for about six months and then it was you know okay back to how I used to behave before <laughs> <laughs> and do you know what we're going to take a break in a second but no I, I do I do get it and I, I do understand it and I'm like ah oh. Where do we need to get to? In my head, I'm you know I'm going to come up with another couple of questions, but let's take a break and we'll be back after these words. This episode was brought to you by Salt Cybersecurity, part of Salt Group, who specialise in providing trust across digital channels by helping major financial institutions verify the identity of their users and authenticating high-value transactions in the UK and globally. And welcome back. And with me, I've got Cheryl Cole, um, former editor of Diversity Q and Diversity and Equitable Inclusion Specialist. Uh, no, not that Cheryl Cole, this Cheryl Cole, the original Cheryl Cole. Um, but we'll get on with it. Um, so, more questions. As a leader in the workplace, would you say you've seen a shift in culture promoting people of colour, women? Oh, um, <laughs> setting those diversity goals. What have you seen? Speak to me. What have I seen? I've seen change. I'm not going to lie. There has been change over the last few years, especially after the murder of George Floyd. There was a lot of um, attempts to promote people of colour into more prominent visual positions. And, you know, we also have, um, I think, the Parker Review, which is trying to get one or one 
member of a diverse population on a board mm-hmm. um, by 2021. And that happened. Um, but then we realised that they were still non-execs. They weren't, you know, proper execs, etc. And there's still more, more work to do in the 250s and 350s. Yeah, I'm not... A, the Park Review, uh, can you... Yeah, so it was, a, it was a review that looked into how diverse boardrooms were. And it, I think it first launched, don't quote me, 2018, 2019. And what they promised was to try and make at least the FTSE 100 or all boardrooms mm. have at least one member from a diverse population on their board by 2021. How's that going? Yeah. <laughs> so at, at present, we have... Well, don't quote me again, because I'm going back to March figures. We have no CEOs of colour on any FTSE board. I'm not sure that we have anybody of colour on a FTSE 100 board um, CEO anymore. We have some non-executive people um, and we have mostly non-executive. If they are of colour, they're mostly non-executive men rather than women. So women are still doing quite poorly in terms of representation. So that was what the review was trying to do, improve diversity on boards. So I'm struggling still to realise why... Given that there's so many brilliant people of colour in senior positions around organisations, why it's still so hard to make that leap into a boardroom? And I've noticed that, and <laughs> I've come to the conclusion that a lot of the reason why it's so hard is because a lot of people are, and forgive me, but I'm going to be honest and say they're there as a visual representation. <clears throat> mm, and, and so in, in my language, I'm going to say token. Thank you. And the support behind them is still not really there. It's not as meaningful as it should be. And you can get so far, but there's only so mm. far you can still get. And so, so I can hear the argument coming the other way is that, no, we, we hire on ability and they don't see, it doesn't matter what they look like or who they are, um, what, what sex they are or what gender they are or, 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 you know, it's about their ability. And that would be the argument coming back. That now we hire people on ability only, da 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 In reality, it doesn't happen. Because in reality, I'm going to give you an example. We know for a fact that most people of colour who are professionals are overqualified for most roles. They're overeducated, overqualified with experience, and still they can't get a foot through the door. Recruitment agencies will come back to you and say, well, we don't know where to find them. We don't know where, you know, there aren't enough of them out there. You know, we don't have access to these people. So what do they do? They go and hire what's easiest to hire, the majority, that, that what they know and what they're most comfortable and the, the majority applying for the, the roles who are going to be not people of colour. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a myth to say that people hire on merit because if they did... I think we'd see a, sh- a huge shift in people getting roles from underrepresented groups because, as I said, we're overqualified. Mm-hmm. So, so what advice would you give organisations or individuals looking to improve their diversity and inclusion practices? First of all, I think you really need to understand your business because I I don't want to say that all organisations need to 
look to improve their DEI metrics because it may not be relative to their organisation. And what I mean by that is if I'm a small farmer, for example, in the middle of the Cotswolds, for example, and I've got three or four employees and you're going to turn around and say to me, I have to make one of those. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense. No, because I ain't working out in no cold. Exactly. Or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the the demographics around you or whatever it is, it makes no sense to force organisations to change if it's not necessary. What we're saying is that if a person wants to join your organisation, um, make it a possibility. Mm. Be fair, be open, be transparent be willing to look at difference to make your organisation fairer for anybody who wants to be a part of it. That's what we're saying when we're talking about how why organisations should need to improve their DEI. And also, for example, another argument that I hear is that we need more black people, so we're going to employ more black people. Actually, if you actually look further down your organisation, you probably find that you've got quite a lot of black people in your organisation. So you don't need to employ more. Mm. What you need to do is support the ones you have in your organisation to grow and develop equally to the others who don't have to work so hard to get to the top. Indeed. Now, it's funny you say that because, again, through all the episodes and interviews that I've done with would-be women, people of colour, um, black, Asian female do matter i'm yet to uh get some lgbtq um uh representation which i'll be looking for uh over the next few weeks but what i've seen um and and the conversations we've had is that these individuals that they're at the top of their game whether they be heads of uh, cio ceo cso's whatever it may be um it's their drive that's got them there yeah, um, it's their mentality and, and and drive that's made them stand out, if that makes sense. And so, you know, whether it's you know the people that I've I've spoken to, I would have noticed is that it's not a massive barrier for them because they've gone on and been driven, and this is what they've wanted to do. And I've I've seen this all along the way. Um, but I also am fully aware that their stories um, also mirror a lot of other stories where people haven't been so driven, people haven't haven't um, had the opportunity, and sometimes they just go, "Do you know what? You know, this is it. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do," because uh, they know that they can't break through that ceiling and break through that barrier. That's a question. I don't know if you've noticed this, Charles, but is it about also, which is something I've noticed, it's about your um, cultural background as well. So I've noticed there's a very big difference between people of colour who were born in the UK and people of colour who have come from Africa or the Caribbean. Question. And let me see if I can get that answer. We'll work through it together. Um, when you are from the West Indies, when we're from the West Indies, my parents are from the West Indies. Um, my parents are from St. Kitts and Nevis. 
Uh, yours are from Jamaica? Yeah, half, my mum's from Jamaica and my dad's from Nigeria, so I'm half and half. Ah, see. Now, in the West Indies, um, my parents grew up having the same um, schooling as people over here. Um, whether it be history, geography, maths, English, it was the same. Um, and when my parents came over here, it was hard. It was tough. You know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and even then it was hard and tough because, you know, quick story, I, I came, I live, you know, I was born and raised in Luton, uh, or Luton, depending where you're from. Um, and where I lived was behind a, a um, God, what was it? What would you call it? Bunch of warehouses, factory. So it was a trading estate. And I remember one time my mum sent me to the shops, it's about six, seven years old, to go and get something for her. And there was a guy on a bike, uh, and he'd come through the alleyway uh, to come down to the main 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 road to the shops. And he, he spat at me and says, go home. Mm. And I'm like, is he talking to me? Mm. Sort of thing. And I went home and told my, my mum what had happened. Some guy spat at me on a bike, for goodness sake. He told me, you know, go back home to where I came from. And I was like, yeah. And, you know, my mum sat me down and says, we are different. Mm. We are not the same. Mm. At seven, eight years old, you don't see colour. Um, you just see your mates and, you know, you go to school and, you know, you're having fun. And she, you know, she, told, she spoke to me and she said, look, you know, we are different. And it was hard growing up. Um, when we look at our African brothers and sisters, it was slightly different because the path was already cleared. Uh, for these guys to come over, in my opinion. Um, they didn't have such a hostile atmosphere uh, as our parents did, or my parents did, um, in, in the you know 50s and 60s. Uh, and so I guess it was slightly easier for them. Yeah. Does that make sense? I, I agree. I agree in that most people that I've met who were not born here and grew up and worked for a period of time elsewhere. Do not have, didn't have the same negative restrictions put upon them. They, because everybody looked like them, everyone behaved like them, and they, all they knew was they were driven, they mm. could achieve. No one was going to tell them you can't achieve anything. Whereas when you're here, growing up here, especially in the seventies and eighties, you're constantly told you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. So. When you move off into the workplace, you already thought in your head, you're already thinking, I can't attain this, I can't achieve that, etc., etc. And you put self limiting barriers on yourself, I think, to a degree. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for you to, to move through that unless you are of a certain nature. Well, exactly. And, you know, you just saying that, I remember. Uh, I went to an all boys school in Chorney, and I always joke about it. it used to be it's it's a bit like it was like Borstal. Um It was it was hard, um, and the teachers didn't give a toss about you. To be fair, mm -hmm. and by the time you know I was in my last year at school, it was like this is a complete waste of my time because as as we spoke about earlier, absolute negativity. Um, no, that's not for you. I remember one guy, and I'll name him, Mister Williams, Paul Williams. He turned around and said to me, was it him? I think he might have been. Allegedly, anyway. Um, you know, Charles, you're, you know, you're no good at X. All you're good for is 
you're like, what's he you're a jungle bunny. All you're good is for running and jumping because I was very good at athletics and, and winning stuff for the school. Uh, and I just looked at him and went, yeah, I'll, I'll, I've got your number type mm. thing. I won't mm. tell you exactly what happened, but um, it was like, I got your number. When you're compared to a jungle bunny and all you're good for running and jumping, you're right. That could stay with you for the rest of your life and thinking, I'm no good. I'm, it's not going to happen to yeah. me. Yeah, and, and if you take all the experiences that you have have as a child, teenager, and those of your peers growing up with you into the workplace, you you know, you're already on the back foot. And I feel that what I've seen is a lot of the high achievers weren't educated in the UK mm. from a young age. And I admire them. I admire I admire their strength and I admire the fact that they don't give a toss. You know Well, welcome <laughs> don't, to my <laughs> Don't tell me I can't do this because I'm gonna go and do it and achieve it whether and, you like it or and, not. And that is my mentality and, yeah. and that has always been uh, my go to. I you know what, I don't care if you're the blooming king of Sheba. Yeah, you're a human being. Yeah. Yeah. We can achieve the same. Yeah. Um I, I work with a really nice guy um called Rushi Joss. And this guy, very privileged, went to two different universities. We work the same job. Yeah. And I said to him one day, I goes, how does it feel, Rashi? He goes, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you've got to get yourself educated. You've gone, you know, two different universities. You didn't really start working until you were 20-something, seven years old. But yet here we are um, doing the same job, getting the same pay. Do you know what I mean? And it's that sort of mentality. You just have to be driven. You have to be. Uh, and... Um, you know, we slightly digress, but I love the conversation uh, yeah. because, you know what, people need to hear it. And for all those guys at Chorney School, yeah, it don't matter if you're a millionaire, it don't matter if you're a BIM, and it don't matter if you're a blue-collar worker or white-collar worker. It's not a judgmental thing, but sometimes you've got people who have made a different stuff. And um, anyone that knows me knows my upbringing. I, you know, the tragedy of my mum passing away at 14 meant that I had to get my shit together eventually. Uh, didn't happen until I was like 27, but, you know, when it did happen, you know, you're on that focused road. Mm. And all I would say is that you, even at that tender age, even at my tender age now, make sure you've got the right people around you. Absolutely. Because if you don't have that support around you, yeah, you're going to have that lead weight around your neck. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's always, always important to do that. And it takes me on to the fact that, you know, we, we talk about, have we seen change in the workplace? Um, yes, we've seen change. It might not be the absolute change that we want to see, but these people are still standing up as role models for the next generation um, to say that, you know, they've done it, doesn't matter how they did it or why they're there or who put them there for whatever reason, they're actually there. And whether they're rolled out every now and then as a poster child for DEI, it doesn't matter. There's actually a person who's in this position mm. so you can get there as well. And I think, it, you know, I didn't have any real role models growing up. In When I was trying to do journalism, there were very few. But I think my mother was my role model. Mm -hmm. She was so determined. I mean, I think she was one of the first women in the UK to get a mortgage back in the 1960s. And I was like, wow, okay, she was hardcore. So looking at her and thinking if she can do what she does as a single woman, there's no reason why I can't do what I really want to do, which is one of the reasons I said to everybody, sod that, I'm going back to retrain because yeah. you can't tell me what Absolutely. I can't do. Absolutely. 
getting back on the question thing, we've sort of tilted off kilter, but that's, you know, it's a great conversation to have. Um, in your opinion, what role does leadership play in fostering a diverse and inclusive culture? So, what would you tell the sort of the board members or the, the management of the C level guys that you know to be successful? And I'm, I'm thinking about banking especially um, because I, I, I tend to get the same sort of answer. You know, everybody needs a bank account of some sort, so you're going to have a diverse bunch of people, uh, and it's you know. Speaking to, uh, in my last episode, I spoke to a guy called Fox Ahmed. And, you know, especially in the organisation where he works, when he joined 20-odd years ago, it was already diverse. Mm. And um, it's kept on going. And his peers were from a diverse background. And, uh, you know, that gave him heart to, to continue. And um, so, again, yeah, what would you... Um, sort of give that advice first of all um if we're going to talk about banking for example i'm going to say what what leaders need to realize especially if you're in a large organization is that the global majority are actually people of color okay so if you're going to work in a homogenous group and only produce products based on your homogenous small group that only going to serve at the end of the day 30% of the world's population then you're missing out commercially on 70% of the world's population because I can guarantee you the products that you've built with your homogenous team who look exactly like you behave like you think like you and expect the same outcomes as you is not going to appeal to everybody else. It's not going to appeal to the person who's in Africa, who is doing all their banking, I don't know, mo on their little mobile in a certain way because they don't have access to proper bank accounts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to produce the products that are going to meet their needs, come 10, 20 years, well, 10, 15 years, you're going to put yourself out of a business. You may not care because you think you're at the door in 10, 15, 20 years, but what about your children? Yeah. You know, what about the legacy that you're leaving them if you're going to ruin the banking system in the UK because you can't be bothered to think differently or engage with people who are different to you? Then you're not leaving anything behind for your children. And that's why I think leaders play a huge role in promoting diversity and inclusion in the workplace. You know, they should be role modeling certain behaviors, which is going to support the business growth. Mm. Um, role modeling aspirational behaviors as well that others can learn from, whether you're from the same demographic group or social group or whatever. Role model behaviors that people behind you are going to think, yeah, that's how I want to be, work, and treat others in yeah. the workplace. And I think it's starting to happen. Um, you know, like I said, the conversations I've had um, uh, over the last God knows how long months and, and, the, and the guests I've had on the show, you know, those green shoots are starting to happen where they, there's function, there's groups, um, especially being promoted within these large corporations, you know, whether it be a NatWest, whether it be a Deutsche Bank, whether it be, you know, Lloyd's, they're starting to promote that and maybe, you know, promoting it with women, um, mm -hmm. in in banking and then you know that diversity of women people of color in there so um, I'd say yeah it's on the right track a um, lot more to do 
I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I mean, I'm going to be honest and say, parking, the, you know, putting the FTSE 100 aside, they have their act together in a certain way. And they, because they've got the resources to have their act together mm. in a certain way. But when you leave that group and you go to the 350, 250 or smaller organisations, it's still very, very challenging um, when it comes to DEI in the workplace. And I understand completely that they may not have the, the know-how, you know, the resources, the funds to put behind good DEI initiatives. Mm -hmm. But it's also the leadership that, you know, it, it, you, to have a good DEI initiative, you don't need a lot of money. You just need willingness um, and know-how. I'm finding talking to some of the leadership in that space still, the focus is purely on commercial returns. Um, and if you, you can't if you can't draw that red thread with how your DEI is going to help with that commercial return, they're not interested. Mm. I'm going to be blatantly honest. They're not interested. Um, because it's nice to have, but it's not going to make me money. Not essential. It's not essential. Okay. So... We're coming to the end. What's next for Cheryl Cole? I'm going to continue to help organisations tell the story they need to tell in the right way, not just tick box exercises, um, not just saying they're doing something for the sake of saying they're doing something, but really help them on this journey of communicating what they need to do, why they need to do it and how they're going to do it so that it resonates with all stakeholders within the business even if they don't recognize somebody as a stakeholder because i think as i said at the beginning communication is the key mm -hmm. um to getting people engaged to do what you want them to do and believing in what you're saying you're doing as well so awesome. that's my journey thank you cheryl it's been an absolute pleasure um we've had a great chat thank you for coming on to cyberglass ceiling and um, I wish you all the best. And thank you, Charles, for having me. Thank you very much. This episode was brought to you by Salt Cybersecurity, part of Salt Group, who specialise in providing trust across digital channels by helping major financial institutions verify the identity of their users and authenticating high-value transactions in the UK and globally.